Hello and welcome to the CP Podcast. This is our fourth episode and I'm here today with a very special guest, Emma Jaster. Um, Emma is, well, I will I would let you introduce yourself and tell us what you are, but I know Emma as a choreographer and dancer and movement maker extraordinaire. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Uh, what did we say I was doing in this show? We said I, I was... Physical Feats of Story and Wonder by Emma Jaster. That's right. That was Cheating, Lying, Stealing by composer David Lang from our show Ancient Groove Music last summer, an appropriately urban piece to start us off. Our our next main stage in February, Strange City, is a more, I would say, a sort of a more cerebral show. It's got a lot of pieces that take on some flavor of urban life but we really wanted something more human and more uh, a better storyteller than um, than just the pieces themselves. And so I instantly thought of of Emma as somebody who could take all of these different pieces and sort of create a story around them and create something that would bring them all together into the Which is show. yet to be seen. Yet to be seen whether I will achieve this feat. But um, yes, come February twenty fifth to find <laughs> out if Emma can do find it. Find out. Um, but it is a delightful challenge. I'm really excited for this. One of the things that I've loved about working with you is that you have studied in so many places and so many different kinds of movement, and you bring all of those to what you do. And I would just love you to tell us about sort of how you went through that and how you accumulated all of that. It started at birth. I was born into a house full of actors, my parents included, and my and also their friends who lived in the other rooms in the house. And uh, my dad is was and is a professional mime, and I started working with him when I was six. So immediately I had uh, theatrical training just through absorption and mime because I was building shows with him from when I was six until I was 12. Um, all wordless storytelling mime to me the magic of that is that you can make everything out of nothing that's the whole thing of mime it's not being trapped in a box it's saying like oh did you you know did you need a new building I can build it for you here did you need a ladder look now here's a ladder I don't need any actual physical props I can make I can build the entire world around me just through my uh imagination and physicalization of that in my higher education I was looking at theater and dance together and trying to figure out how they were interconnected I deliberately went to a college I went to Amherst College because they had a combined theater and dance department where I didn't have to choose between being a theater person or a dance person because I was like ah it feels like two sides of the same coin um so I went there I studied abroad in Paris went to the the Cook Physical Theater School. And, you know, they tear you apart there. <laughs> I, have, uh, I, have, I have heard of it, but what, um, 
what this is this exactly? is a school with a long history and it a, is and a and a, and a reputation among certain yes. uh yeah certain crowds but it is right so it's a physical theater school founded by Jacques Lecoq he was working very he actually came from like athletics so he was it's why he was so interested in the body even though he was really coming from it from the theater side he was like but like the fully engaged body is just like so much more exciting than the than watching a brain abstractly work um so yeah so all of the work there was like super super physical we had acrobatics classes every morning and then we would have a, we did a lot of mask work um one of the most um, useful purposes of study in mask is it forces the performer to fully embody whatever they're expressing rather than letting it live exclusively in the face. So we have a tendency as humans, and a lot of actors do this too, that we rely on our facial expressions to portray our emotions or our thoughts or our situation and uh when you have a mask on you can't do that so it forces you to take it and like put it all the way into your fingertips and your toes and your back and you get all the rest of your body is like here is the feeling it is all through me it is not just like you know um i do have to just say that um I'm I'm sorry you're all not with us in the studio. Her demonstrations are always um, a- absolutely a joy to see and to watch. And you do pretty good full body expression in your everyday conversation. I'll do my vo- best. To, <laughs> I'll do my best to put it onto my voice here oh, in this instance. But um, right. So let's see that. Where where are we now in the history? Um, I've studied clown here in New York. I. I'm always looking for the clearest connection between the performer and the audience. It's just about being able to express in the clearest possible way. When we were at Dixon Place a couple of years ago for France Dance Revolution, we had the amazing dancer Caroline Copeland joining us, and she did a number in Mask. And this was Marin Marais' Les Voix Humaines, played by Hannah Collins and Arash Nouri. And she started sitting next to them with the mask in her lap and eventually put it on and then eventually came to life as this piece unfolded.
could you define clowning for us? Clown, as I practice it, is about being your most vulnerable and open human self in front of an audience. And the reason clown is so important is that as children, of course, we have all of these, you know, our feelings are are open and available and we go through things and it allows us to like move through them much more quickly. You spend time with a kid and you realize that they're like, oh, this is the saddest thing in the world. And like, oh, ice cream. Oh, great. Ah, da, 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 da. You know, um, because they're not holding on to any of it. And somehow as adults, we become like more and more contained and restrained and disciplined in our sharing and uh, presentation of inner feelings. And so we start to be like, no, I'm not angry with you. Of course not. And you like hold it. And then it means that actually I'm angry at you on the inside all day long. Um, And uh, we do all of this editing of ourselves in order to be civilized human beings. But because of that, we, we live with so much more anxiety and self-criticism and self-doubt and you know constantly being like everybody else has their shit together and I'm a fucking mess you know um and the clown gets to be like no I'm a fucking mess too oh my god you know you're like oh my god you're a mess too oh all right oh it's actually that's just totally human and that's so much easier (laughs) so for me the clown allows us to uh access and be okay with all of our feelings because the clown is experiencing them for us before us um, and when we, when we see our own troubles in someone else, uh, it, it allows us to release them from ourselves. Um, and that's just such an important process in life. It doesn't mean I wear a red nose. It doesn't mean I have a wig or funny shoes. I could look, I could be a lady in heels and a business suit and absolutely be a clown.
That was Guillaume Dufay's Flos Florum, performed by Jess Petrus, Daniel Moody, and myself, back from our show The Lover in Winter a year ago. So we are also doing on this concert um, uh, the Sonatina for Piano by Conlon Nancaro, which I'm extremely excited about because Nancaro uh, famously started writing for player piano. He started writing pieces that were unplayable and he wrote this piece that we're playing on this concert for one pianist to play and it was hardly possible and then eventually he figured out that he could use mechanics to do this you have a spool of of paper which has different which you can make holes in and when that is played through similar to a music box it plays the keys for you and so he was able to create piano rolls that were much more um, or impossible for humans to recreate because the you know for instance on a piano roll you could actually depress every key of the piano at once and hit all 88 keys and that's a pretty big stretch for somebody's arm to do yeah or um you know glissandos up and down the piano faster than a hand can do it and he got really into this and started making his piano etudes which he wrote 30 something of and they are a combination of this experimental idea of what you can do and push the technique and go towards the impossible and go further combined with a really great sense of jazz a really great sense Mm -hmm. of sort of folk music in america and a, a an incredible rhythmic feel which which influenced tons of composers after him so, but the piece that we're doing was not initially composed for an automatic player piano. It was initially composed for an actual person, but it was just way too hard. Correct. And then it was, I think it was transcribed for player piano and made into a role at some point. But then later he had um, uh, somebody named um, Ivar Michkov who transcribed it for forehand piano. And so two pianists at one piano and it is possible to play in that version. So what is your current proposal for this piece? So for this piece, um, our two fabulous pianists, Dan Schlossberg and Lee Dion, will be sitting at the same piano and playing it. You talked about one of them at the keys and one of them at the strings. Is that something you... That is happening in the cowl piece at the beginning. So the piece, the the program right now is um, divided into two halves, and each half sort of accumulates instruments as it goes. And so the first half begins with um, with Dan and Lee, our two pianists, at the piano for Henry Cowell's Aeolian Harp, which is admittedly usually played by one person, but it's played inside the piano with another while depressing the keys in the front. And so we're going to let both of them play it so that they can come back for the beginning of the second half of the show for the Nancaro and sit down and play Nancaro Sonatina as a forehands piece. The last time we had four hands piano arrangements on a CP concert was Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring. Here's Dan Schlossberg and Amy Yang playing that at Music Mountain in 2015.
seen you choreograph a lot of people and work with a lot of other people but being on your own for a project like this gives you I'm sure a huge amount of flexibility um, and I would just love to ask what that's how, how that process is different for you yeah well in some ways it's nice because I already know I know myself and my existing abilities better than I know any other performer it gives me more freedom to play around because whenever I'm working, I'm usually working physically and with my actual body. And as I do that, anything that I can come up with, I can put on stage because I don't have to then translate it to somebody else and see whether or not they can do it. I can just do it. So that's nice. Um, I also already have, you know, a bit of a like toolbox of pieces and bits and, you know, they're not quite acts, but little things that I know like, oh yeah, right, I do have this puppet that can do that. Or like, oh yeah, I do like, you know, I, I, I can do this transformation thing where like my feet become the characters or I can do, you know, there's sort of like little, little tricks up my sleeve that I'm very familiar with that I get to pull out and play around with. So that part is really fun. It's, it's definitely harder in some ways because I don't get to then watch it as easily like if I'm putting something on someone else I get to tell them and then immediately know whether or not it's working because I'm watching it and I can be like yes that's working no that's not working when I'm just doing it by myself in my living room I'm like okay so I just did it I know that I managed to do the thing that I saw in my head but I don't know whether it looked like the thing that I saw in my head or whether it's funny One of the pieces coming up on this program is Morton Feldman's Routine Investigation. That was a Morton Feldman-esque piece by a friend of ours, composer Matthew Welch, whose music we played a couple of years ago at The Stone in New York. That was Doug Perry, Gleb Kanasevich, and Daniel Schlossberg.
we've been discussing a bit this idea of where does the stuff come from? What are the images that we want to build? And um, I'm as I look around the city, I'm like, okay, what is the what is the ubiquitous material? What is the thing that says city to me the most? And um, obviously, there's infinite possibilities there. But I guess when I think about a dystopia and the dystopic city as opposed to the revered city of ambition and dreams uh the thing that that is the hardest for me to take in the city now is people who do not have homes and so i'm interested in developing a character for whom the city is home and there is no further shelter than that uh the city itself is the only shelter so as i'm sort of developing who that person is i'm looking at the the world of their stuff and uh the the home that they create for themselves that they carry on their back and wheel and carts and push on strollers and all all manner of vehicles and the sort of iconic one of course is that like the little granny cart we said you know you've seen them you carry your laundry to the laundromat in it or your groceries from the grocery store everything that they that i use in the show has to come out of that cart so that everything i carry with me i mean everything i use i also have to carry with me i don't know yet if that will be possible but it is it is a fun challenge Thank you so much for joining us today and listening as we talk about our upcoming show, Strange City, February 25 and 26 at Dixon Place downtown. Tickets are available at www.cantataprofana.com. And if you want to keep up with the podcast, please subscribe to us on iTunes. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>